Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Rob Clark, Director of Global Entertainment at Fremantle, about how the firm's adapting its game shows to COVID-19 restrictions and dealing with the absence of MIPCOM. Sex and the City creator Darren Starr, patron of this year's Cannes series, talks about his new Netflix series Emily in Paris, and Israeli comedian and writer Reshev Levi, among the winners at last year's Cannes series competition, discusses dramedy Nehama, now set for a US remake. Rob Clark is Director of Global Entertainment at Fremantle, a veteran of both the company and MIPCOM, responsible for setting the international format agenda for a business behind series including Family Feud, The Price is Right, Got Talent and The X Factor. He spoke with Clive Whittingham about how Fremantle has adapted its game shows to keep them on air during the ongoing pandemic, why the genre has seen an uptick in demand among broadcasters during this period, and the reasons he's missing being in Cannes this week. I think of all of the years in what has now turned into quite a long television career, um, 2020 has been the one that's been most demanding, but also in some ways quite rewarding, because I think you sometimes get in a rut, don't you? And you don't expect that it's going to be a pandemic that makes you get outside of that rut. But I think both personally and as a company, it's made us think very differently and made us work very differently and made us sort of, even they were apart work much closer together in that sense it's been quite rewarding and certainly we've managed to sort of still deliver most of our shows which again has been rewarding how's that delivery happened during a, a year when there's been this big production shutdown i mean what challenges have you had to overcome to get shows through in all of our key territories we've had quite severe covid restrictions on how we produce but we've had protocols put in place now in all of those territories that we feel key the team safe and keep any contributors safe and that was our major priority and actually it's allowed allowed us to produce rather successfully now that often means producing with smaller audiences or no audiences where that affects the shows the most are probably in the big talent shows in game shows you can get away with it for a simple reason that a game show in itself is a hermetically sealed bubble. It shouldn't have any relevance to the outside world. That's one of the secrets of a game show. So the outside world doesn't exist. So you can dub an audience. You never turn to an audience on most game shows. Um, probably the one that would be the most difficult would be play cards right, as we call it in the UK, Card Sharks internationally, where you are hiring or lowering. And Price is Right, which had its own problems. But even Price is Right now is back in production. So we're back in production in Europe, we're back in production in Asia, and this week we're back in production with Prices Right in the US. But presumably, like you say, because they have relevance to the outside world or, or however you put it there, you obviously don't want people to be two metres apart, you don't want people wearing masks, anything like that really. How do you go about producing game shows without having that? Well, you don't want two people to be too far apart, but where they're sitting in a in a panel formation, so for example on Prices Right, where everybody's on contact contestant row. What we've done there is we've just put perspex sheets down. So on camera, it actually looks very different. And if you look at as many game shows as I do around the world, you'll see that that's a technique that most people are using anyway. We tend to use family bubbles or we test people. We're increasingly testing people. So Family Fortunes, UK name, Family Feud, international name. You know, that's now having an amazing year. 
because it's probably the most COVID-friendly show of all because you're playing it in your family bubble. You know, it's getting big audiences because it's really good family entertainment. And once you're in that bubble, there's no need for an audience. You're playing as, as that team. So in that sense, that's fine because you're not introducing anyone external. If you're introducing candidates that don't know each other and you've not tested them, then obviously they either need to be two metres or one and a half metre, whatever the local protocol is, apart or, they're shielded by Perspex Shields, which we're using. No physical audiences in the studio, obviously, at the moment. Is that is that a particularly big deal? Do you dub them on afterwards? What effect does it have? Well, there's two effects that it can have. So the first effect is in the production process itself. If you've not got any response to a show which has got a lot of humour in it, and one of the keys to a game show is that it has to be funny. You know, most game shows that succeed are funny. In fact, all game shows that succeed are funny. Those that don't are because they're just not amusing. Um, so the process there is hindered if you haven't got any sort of body laughing back at the host or the things that the contestants or the families or whatever it is are saying. So there's two ways of getting around that. One is to have a very, very sparse, socially distanced audience or do what Big Breakfast did, which was your crew is your audience. So rather than them be encouraged not to say anything and just constantly traits on what they're doing and they are the sort of silent deliverers of the program they become a much bigger part and then the process then in editing and in dubbing is to enhance that noise that the sparse audience or the crew make so look neither are neither are ideal but actually if you look at the end result i don't think you would notice i mean i you know i've been doing this a long time and okay i'm everybody knows i'm not the most technical of people right i'm very much about the emotional of something rather than the technicality of how it's made. But I don't notice that things are dubbed. It's not like in the old days when dreadful laughter tracks were added and, you know, it was done really quickly. You can do it and you can make it sound pretty good now. Physical game shows seem to be having a moment at the start of the year, you know, big obstacle courses or close combat between contestants. Is that just a no-go now with all the, the restrictions? I think at the moment it would be very difficult in certainly all of our production territories to make that sort of show because they often demand physical contact I mean, there are places where you can do it, but that's you're really looking at Australia. That's probably the only relatively safe, big territory. Or you can test people and then put them inside a sort of well-screened-off bubble. You can do that, and and then you could you can carry on. But certainly, you wouldn't be able to do. We don't. We, we are not making any at the moment. Um, let's put it that way. How much extra time and expense is all of this adding to your? Story? standard television production. In terms of time, it's actually not adding that much time in terms of the process of pre-production or a little bit more probably in post-production because you're spending more time dubbing, but but it's minimal. In terms of cost, there are obviously costs there. You know, there's costs in testing your crew, there's costs in testing the contestants, there's costs in sort of just slowing down production. If you imagine that game show production is very often done sort of with numerous shows being made a day. These are like well-oiled machines so that people are coming in and going out. So 
that has all had to slow because you just don't want people to meet. So in that sense, where we would probably be making five shows a day, we're probably only making four or sometimes three shows a day. So there's a hidden cost there. And then there's just extra costs in terms of, you know, just making sure everybody's safe. But it's a cost that on the whole, our broadcasters are, if not picking all of it up, which rarely do they, they're sharing with us. And they, they like us, don't want any of the crew or any of the contestants to be ill. I mean, it's as simple as that. We want our shows to be on air because we think they play a value as much as anything else in keeping people's spirits up in this, as we said, this dreadful year. But at the same time, what you don't want to be doing is making them and risking anybody's health, you know? This is not sort of Donald Trump time wandering around without his mask in the White House. We don't want that. It's making sure that we can produce to protocols that protect everybody's safety and keep up, you know, the standard that that we want for our shows. With those extra costs, and obviously we've heard about falls in ad market and things like that, have broadcast fees, uh, license fees and things like that, have they held up so far? And do you anticipate them holding up? Or what, what, what's the direction of travel there? I think broadcasters are obviously under a lot of pressure from revenue. And I think that will be sort of, I'm hoping that it will be a very a relatively V-shaped recovery on that front. What we found is that they haven't really asked for for major reductions in budgets. But I think what they're what they are doing is they're turning to shows that they know are guaranteeing core audiences and turning to productions that, that, that they know that can be delivered relatively safely. So, you know, ordering 20 game shows is a much cheaper venture than ordering a great big drama or ordering a big uh, reality series. We all know that. But actually, at the moment, they're delivering really good audiences. So if you look at Family fortunes in the UK, that's delivering a great audience on Sunday evening. You know, it's beating the BBC. It's sort of doing really well. If you look at Rolling In It that we had over the summer, that was the number one show. It was getting a higher rating than The Boys Kids, which followed it, which was in peak time. Um, it beat everything that was op- in opposition against it on ITV. Epic Game Show before that was a smash hit for Alan Carr and Talk Back. It won every single episode, won its slot and won the night. So you can see in the UK they're working. That's been replicated again in exactly the same way in the US, where the six primetime game shows that we have are all delivering good, solid core audiences, both in family demo and in sort of the younger demo. And also in France and in a lot of our European, bigger European territories, you can see that game shows are really doing well. We're, we're getting commissions and then when we're delivering them, they're delivering great audiences. And I think it's explained by two simple facts. One is that families are spending more time together and game shows are hugely family friendly. You don't have to know a great deal of knowledge. We're asking people, name something you'd take to a beach, you know? And any age can actually say that. And who's to say if they're right or wrong. You know, often kids are better at family feud than their parents are. And the second thing is that 
for some key younger demos, they've never seen game shows. They haven't been on air in prime time during their sort of adolescent period. So that is an attractive feature to it. And then a third one is that if you're my age, it's actually quite good to see some of these shows. Mind you, when you were a bit younger. So there's a, there's a sort of, there's a newness about a lot of them, but also there's a heritage that carries over that makes them very family friendly, I think. Given the, the, the budget challenges that some broadcasters are facing, if you are coming up with a new idea, pitching a new idea now, is it not unambitious, but is it you're trying to do more with less? You're trying to keep the ideas quite small? I, I don't know. Is it Or do you just go the other way and go mega ambitious? I, I think that I've never told anybody to not be ambitious within our company. I think that if you've got a good show, you have to really, really fight to get that good show on air. And sometimes it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes it takes a long time for it to happen. And I'm always sort of reminded of, you know, Paul Smith and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. That was a long, long struggle to get that on air. But he never gave up on it. You know, the team behind that never gave up on it. You know, and it ended up being the global hit that it was. So if you've got a show that you believe in and you've developed a show that you believe in, as long as you've listened to advice about how it can be tweaked, how it can be made better, then stick with it. I mean, we're lucky in our company in that if you can't get it away in one territory, there is always a chance that we can get it away in another territory with with one of our production companies. And that's not always the case for a lot of other people, but that has proved helpful for us. So Take Me Out, for example, you know, was a French show. Well, actually, it got pitched in France, it was rejected, and then eventually it went back to France, as I think it was about our 20th territory that took it. And there are other examples like that. But no, don't be, you know, if anybody's listening to this thinking the secret is to be unambitious and think small, that's not the way to do it. Even a small idea should be, or a cheap idea should be a big, ambitious idea, you know, but just within the confines of the budget. So we've talked we've talked funny and feel good and we, we mentioned physical game shows and the challenges around that. Are there any other trends that you can put your finger on that are coming out of either the pandemic year and as we go into 2021 is there anything that's hot and not at this point no i think that i think that what's not is cruel and i think you don't have to sort of have a thousand people out there researching this for you you know when you've finished your day at the moment you've done a really tough day's work and what i don't want to watch is something that's then gonna be cruel or upsetting or whatever you know so i think that sort of feel good and friendly is is hot i think you want something that just takes you away for that hour or that half hour however long it is that takes you away from sort of the the realities of the world which are actually quite harsh and even given a vaccine and even given everything else we're still going to have the economic issues of 2020 to be dealing with for the next few years and this is one of the things that sort of you can see with game shows which is you know why when you said you want to talk about this I was keen to talk about it game shows are always more prevalent in times of economic depression always so if I was cleverer than I am I would play the stock markets by how we sell Family Feud. So the last time we began to sell Family Feud was 2007. And we saw a real spike from 2007 through to, I don't know, 2011, 12. And then you go back down to the core, which is sort of the American Daily, the American Prime Time, various others around the world. And then all of a sudden, last year, you began to see people getting interested in Family Feud again, beginning of the year. And then now, you know, I think we're, I think for the first 
first time in a long time we're back to six continents again with it. So there's something about a game show, whether it's the price point or the delivery of a core audience or the fact it just takes that audience out of themselves for that time. That's why they work. Are there um, any particular new fertile markets that, that you're exploring for, for formats? So you've got Hole in the Wall from, from the Far East and South Korea's done better than most, both in television this year and in the pandemic. Are there, are there fertile areas around the world that you're exploring? Well, I mean, we've never not looked around. You know, we got Hole in the Wall from Japan and we have a great relationship with Fuji through that. I think this year we're making around mid-20s series of Mass Singer. So obviously, you know, we realise that these markets are important and, you know, we have relationships there and we've, we're always looking for something that's a bit different that can transfer. That's the main issue there in that sort of, if you look at a lot of the world's television, it's very different, but it's how you then take it and make it transferable to the Western markets and then roll out around the rest of the world. So I don't think there's there's anywhere in particular that I'm thinking, wow, that's going to be the next big hottie. And if I was, I wouldn't tell you because I wouldn't want everybody <laughs> to listen to it anyway. But, you know, we've gone through Japan, then we went through Israel, now we're in South Korea. But if you actually look at it, the core of delivery of formats are still from UK, US, Holland, and a few major European territories. So, you know, it's always exciting to look other places because you do sometimes see things that are so different, like Mass Singer or like Hole in the Wall. But then it is that how you transfer it, how you create something that as a format is not just mad, but is transferable. We're usually at MIPCOM at this point. How does it affect your job and your business not having an event circuit like that this year with the networking and the pitching and everything else? Look, from our company point of view, one of the big losses is it's where we all come together. And that for for us is, is sad because it's not just that we like each other. It's the fact that you can sort of drill down and find out more about what's going on. But I think, as I said right at the beginning, we feel more connected anyway, because, you know, rather than go to France for the day, I'm now speaking to 10 different territories every day. I spend my life just looking at this computer, talking to people, right? So in that sense, we are more connected. But I think you miss the physicality of meeting your colleagues from around the world. So that's one loss. In terms of actually the market itself, we have people on the ground in all of the major markets around the world. So they see their broadcasters there every day or every week or every month, however often it is they see them. So in that sense, we're not missing anything. But certainly there is something missing about not seeing everybody else's programmes and wandering around thinking, oh, I bet that does well. Or I wish we'd have thought of that one, you know? So I think that there's the networking side is missing. The business side for a big company like ours, I'm not sure it is missing because we can do it and we're doing it over teams and we're doing it over zoom and we're doing it over everything else and we're still getting commissions and we're still selling but it's certainly i hope by this time next year to be back in can let's put it that way do you think we'll be back on the plane to the same extent we were before because it had got to the stage where you could be at a television event every week the only event i ever went to was uh mip and mipcom they're the, they're the only two that i ever went to to me they were the two that were most important i know that my colleagues go to other ones and 
they feed back into the whole system what was happening. I, I don't know. I, I think that sort of if if this pandemic had ended now, I would have assumed that it had been such a short period of time people will fall back into their old ways. But if it carries on for much longer, maybe people will begin to think differently. But then again, I miss going to the studio. I miss actually being there when we're making the shows and all the rest of it. So once I can travel, I will travel. But I suspect not to the same mad extent I have done for the last 17 years. Rob Clark from Fremantle. Postponed from its usual March position due to COVID-19, French television festival Cannes Series has nonetheless still been holding physical screenings on the Riviera this past week and a string of online virtual presentations. Sex and the City and Beverly Hills 90210 creator Darren Starr was patron of this year's event, which wraps today, and he spoke with Michael Picard about his new Netflix series, Emily in Paris, and a career filled with hits that have had a lasting impact on television storytelling. You know, it's it's sort of an idea I've had for some time. I really, um, I am a bit of a Francophile. I love Paris. I was been there, you know, since I was sort of a kid backpacking around Europe. I kind of, I fell in love with the city and have subsequently come back many times since. And I just sort of thought how wonderful and difficult it might be to actually work and live there. And so I wanted to, you know, tell a story about this young woman who came to Paris where it wasn't her dream, where she wasn't prepared, where French was, you know, she, she didn't really have any interest necessarily in travel. She led a, a fairly sheltered life in the Midwest and was sort of like, you know, thrown into the into the city. And I also wanted to do a show that kind of like, I think the theme is that traveling, being in a foreign country, kind of like leaving your comfort zone, you know, how it, it just expands who you are as a person. And I think that's what it's it's a real journey of, you know, self-discovery for Emily as the series progresses because the experience of living in Paris changes her. Yeah, I mean, we see very much at the start that she's parachuted in and can't speak French that she um, sort of obviously struggles with at the start. And how do we see her develop as a, a person, I guess, by this experience? And, and how maybe do we also see the other characters adapt to her? Because I guess they're two sides of a very different kind of coin at the start. Yeah, of the I mean, I think if you've seen the first two, you know, the series really does progress in that some of the characters are work do develop a lot of affection for her and vice versa. Not all of them. And it changes her in the sense that I think she realizes she starts to look at her life as something bigger than she imagined it was. And, and just in terms of, I guess, your career going back from, you know, Beverly Hills through to Melrose and Sex in the City, I mean, where do we find you as a writer and as a, a storyteller at this point in your career writing about Emily in Paris? How do you feel that this kind of is the next thing that you wanted to do? It's something that's been that I've had in my head for a long time and I think finally we're able, I wouldn't have wanted to film the show unless we were actually filming it in Paris and I think that finally, you know, we're at the point in television where we can go and film film an entire series in Paris with sort of level production values that's equal to cinema and that's sort of the way I wanted to do it. So I think, okay, now we can finally do it that way. It's also nostalgic for me to imagine myself young in the city like that and it's great to sort of like put yourself, you know, to be in those shoes but also I did feel like at this time, you know, with our country, I thought it was important to just do a show about an American being abroad and like not, you know, we're so inward looking and maybe always just sort of feeling like America is the world if you live here. And for me, it's, I, I thought it was important to do a show about, or I wanted to do a show about an American having sort of a cultural experience and hopefully encouraging others to do the same. As far as I'm aware, the show was uh, Paramount, I believe first, and obviously now right. it's on Netflix. Can you right. talk us a bit about, you know, just that development process and maybe when you brought it to Netflix, did it have to change much at all? Or did they kind of embrace the show that you wanted to make? Yeah, um, it was originally done for the Paramount Network. And when it was completed, I we discussed the fact that it'd be better served on Netflix. 
Netflix. So happily, Netflix wanted to do it. And no, it didn't. It didn't really change. It didn't change in terms of the transition to Netflix. It's the same. It's the same series. I, I think it was done in the sense that it would be on cable television, where you do have certain restrictions. So I'm not sure if it would have been conceived that differently. On it's not an R. It's not an R-rated show. It could have been if it was originally going to be on Netflix. But I love. I, it's a romantic show. You know, it's not a show about sex. It's a show about romance and about Emily discovering herself as a series progresses. And you talked a bit about, you know, being able to film a whole series in Paris. What was production like in, in terms of the preparation you had to do? And then, you know, being on set in Paris, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was at the first, it was very daunting because I didn't know how it was going to be working in Paris with a French crew. But the crew turned out to be just fantastic. And the actual process of filming, it was not different than filming here and um, filming in the States. I think they just delivered above and beyond what my expectations and sort of they were just so passionate about the show and also about sort of like about sharing the city with us. Did you have, um, I guess, a particular visual style? I mean, when you when you say, you know, you're setting a show in Paris, that obviously brings a lot of images of Eiffel Towers and Notre Dame to your mind. Is that something you wanted to shy away from or were you committed to kind of? No, I was really, I was really committed to it, be committed to it because this is Emily, this is Paris seen through Emily's eyes and it's her first time there. And this is the first time you come to Paris. That's what you see. And that's sort of what you're, what, what is sort of like, you know, knocking you off your feet is how beautiful the city is. And I think the show embraces the cliches because Emily's experiencing the cliches for the first time. So to her there, it's fresh. And I think it's, it is the way that she's sort of perceiving the city. So um, yeah, I would say in the way that Sex in the City glamorizes New York, this show does the same for Paris, it's seen through that kind of lens. So I guess particularly at the time now when we're not traveling as much, it's uh, it's great to see the yeah. city. So in terms of, I've seen the, the talk that you've done for Cannes series. It was obviously interesting to know there's been sort of 30 years since Beverly Hills sort of first came about. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you reflect on, you know, your start in the industry and, and maybe how it's how it's changed in terms of the shows and the stories you've been able to tell? I mean, I think that, you know, at the time I did Beverly Hills 90210, you know, I was a screenwriter and television is not what you did if you were writing movies, but I found it to be amazing because I realized how much creative control I had as a writer on a show and also just how much got produced so quickly. So I love television. And I think, you know, and for me, Sex and the City was a big game changer because it was like meant to be, I created it almost like as an independent film for television. I didn't think it was going to be, I, it wasn't meant to be commercial, but it was meant to be, I guess, exactly what I wanted it to be and without any, uh, you know, restrictions on content, frank and honest. And so I think from that point, I think HBO changed the game in terms of being able to see content wise that there was no guardrails in terms of what you could say or or, or express. And um, and I think since that point, especially now television is just the growth is just explosive in terms of the amount of content and also the just the production values. In the terms of both Sex and the City and, and 90210, when you know they've become such sort of cultural touchstones sort of so many years later, but at the time of both of those shows, were you aware of maybe the cultural impact that these shows were having as you were making them and then continuing to make them in this kind of world where they were being held up? You know, both both of them, the first season, not at the beginning. You know, you're just doing the show. The show's completed really, well, Sex City, the first season was completed before it aired. 90210, it was not a hit right away. But yeah, certainly with 90210, by the second season, they were on the cover of Rolling Stone. And Sex City, they were 
902, they were on the cover of Rolling Stone, Sex City, they were, they were on the cover of Time Magazine. So yeah, you get a sense, but it's, at the same time, you, you have to sort of like not pay too much attention to all of that because you've got to keep doing the show that you're doing. But just in terms of, of Sex in the City, I mean, how do you look at that show's legacy, particularly in the terms of, you know, the show's subject matter and, and um, you know, the prominent female characters that are now, you know, every show now has a strong female character. And, and I guess it all harks back to Sex in the City, really. I mean, how do you kind of just encapsulate that in, in the legacy of the show and, and how the, you know, stories have moved forward since then? No, I think it's, I, I, I think it's amazing. And I think you don't, you can't ever imagine, you know, when you're doing something like that, what the impact of it's going to be. But I'm so happy that it opened the door and made sort of stories from a female point of view prove that they would attract an audience, be successful. I think with 90210, I think there's a big question. Could you ever have a show about teenagers that an audience would want to watch? It was just about teenagers. And I think that was a question at that time. And, you know, I think TV has just gotten so diverse. I think when I started, there were four networks and things had to have very, very broad appeal in order to succeed. And it was all ratings driven. It was all about the ratings. So you couldn't really, there wasn't, there was no niche programming. But I think now, I think the more per, the stories have gotten so much more personal. I mean, I see a, ser- a show that I love, Girls, I May Destroy You, sort of female driven shows that are just feel so personal to their um, creators and those voices. And just in terms of, I guess, your own creative process and as, as a showrunner, do you have a particular writing process or? Or, you know how you like to to run rooms, or and has that changed at all over the years? Uh, it really, it really hasn't changed. It's really just about spending a lot of time in a room, and I kind of you know like to dig in very deeply and minutely into everything, all the you know um, all the beats of the story, and it's just sort of the same grinding process, I guess, developing uh, an an episode of television. And it really, I, I think, in that sense, the difference now it's being done on Zoom, which is a little strange, but we're doing it. We're actually start filming the seventh season of Younger next week in New York so how how has um, I guess preparations then gone for that considering the the current circumstances I guess health and safety is key at the moment absolutely I mean so many so much health so many health and safety protocols I will say it's not going to be as much fun to be on the set but we're getting you know I think we're going to get it done and I think everybody is excited to get back to work in a really safe way I mean on Emily in Paris I mean why do you think this is a show that will appeal to viewers around the world on Netflix well I think now more than ever I think people want a vicarious trip to Paris we can't go there. And I think it celebrates the importance of, uh, you know, a love of travel and uh, Paris. And I, I think at this point, I just hope people are looking for a good, you know, 10 episodes of Escape. Darren Starr. Israeli dramedy Nehama tells the story of a man who has everything till one day his wife suddenly dies and he decides to pursue his dream of becoming a stand-up comedian. Produced by 24 Draft Studios and Yoav Gross Productions for Israeli cable channel Hot, the show comes from real-life stand-up comic Reshef Levi, who won Best Performance for it at last year's Cannes Series competition. The programme has been picked up in France and recently the US and is now being distributed by APC. Levi spoke with Michael Picard. Nechama uh, is an Israeli TV show. It uh, tells the story of Guy Nechama, which is his, his name is Nechama, the last the family name is Nechama, who is a very frustrated, in the middle of a life crisis, all, um, a white man, who has a perfect job in a high-tech company, has a perfect wife, five children, but still he hates his life because he didn't fulfill his dream to become a stand-up comedian when he was uh, younger. He, he left the field. And while he, when he loses his wife under a... Uh, 
of circumstances, although he's a widower with five children, he tries to pursue his old dream and become a stand-up comedian. He loses his high-tech job, and that's, in a nutshell, the story of the show. I'm a stand-up comedian with seven children in real life, so uh, there's a lot of um, truthness in the show in a way that makes it... You know, it's it's very authentic show, I would say, and and it and when it comes to the genre, it's it's a comedy, but it's a lot of sadness and drama inside. It's a one-hour drama with a lot of comedy inside, so it's a mix of genres when it comes to the tone of the show. When did you start thinking about the show, and and what was the driving factor behind you know the fact that it is maybe largely based on on your own life and your own experiences? First of all, I wrote the show together with uh, Thomas Chenier, who was also the director of the show, so it, it was a team effort, and it was. Uh, uh, produced uh, by uh, Yoav Gross, our friend. So it was a trio working on this show uh, creatively. But uh, I started thinking of this idea when I was... Uh, I, I finished working on the, the fourth season of my previous show, The Arbitrator, Haborer in Hebrew, which was a huge success, too huge success for me because the country was crazy about that and it was a big thing in Israel. So then after you finish something like that, you are a little bit left alone in your room trying to, to figure out what's, what would be the next project. And I read an old interview with uh, Spielberg and he said that his most successful and most and his best work, that was the term he was using, was when he was writing on his biggest fears. So I was sitting in a room thinking, what are my biggest fears? And I do really love my wife very much. So I thought that losing her would be a very uh, bad thing for me, especially when you have seven children and the family is a big thing in my life. Uh, and then I was thinking to myself, all right, what would be, what is your other big fear? And the other big fear is, of course, not being able to practice my art, not being to be able to be a stand-up comedian and writing, you know, as a writer, if you you can't write and you can't be a stand-up comedian for me it's death and uh, so that was the way I thought about the idea of the show and then coronavirus came the COVID-19 and they took the shows away from me and all I left is with the uh, as a, I'm left as a writer and, and I tell you the truth I wasn't that wrong so many years ago when I thought about the idea of the show because when they took the, the stand-up for me uh, like last uh, like in the like last couple, a couple of year, uh, months it was like destiny so th- that was true to me and uh, uh, we worked at the show together and, and we tried to, to be um, very sincere. Talked a lot about our wives, our the mothers of our children. And in a way, this show is a love song to to a woman. And in, in the center of the show, there is a man, but it's all about w- women. And he's surrounded with women who are, who are strong and smart and funny. And also you see how much he, he was dependent on his wife and how much he's lost with Arthur in, in a, a very, uh, I, I hope, truthful way. And how, how has uh, the show been received in Israel? And I gather it's been on air in France on Canal Plus as well. First of all, it was a miracle because, you know, we did the most private show ever made you know in our lives on our on our wives you know many of the dialogues are real dialogues and you know we we had with our women when we try to reconstruct them in our head as, as a drama and we thought nobody would watch it we, we were sure that we are going to do a flop but we said we would love it and you know it it was a blast we went to con series and we were the opening series of uh, of cons festival in in the famous palais in, in cons and when we we had two episodes on the on, on the screening and when we finished the screening the audience didn't left for like 25 minutes they were standing 
applauding and applauding us. It was an amazing uh, moment. I knew that that's the, the peak of my career, that nothing would, would be compared to that. You know, it's something that you know when it happens, when it happens, that you know, you would never be in this place ever again. And you should, should try to cherish the moment. And they loved it. And at the end, they also give us a big award of the best performance in, in the festival, which was a great thing to, to have. And in Israel, we won also... Uh, the, the best script and best TV series in, in Israeli Emmys. And we went to, for an, a couple of other uh, TV series festivals and the audiences here in Israel loved it. It was a big hit. I understand it was also a big hit in France. The, the amazing thing, we had all the good reviews, which was something, you know, I never thought I would ever have because when you're doing comedies, you always know that some of the critics will, will hate you and you accept that as a fact of life. And suddenly everybody wrote praises on the show and I I was like you know it was like a dream and now I know it's only going to be downhill from now on in my career I know that was the peak of my career I know I'm going to die uh, and that was the end of it but I am so grateful for for having this experience it was it was great and you know when you you get when you get bad reviews you always says critics are not important and when you do when you don't get award you say awards are, are not important and when the audiences doesn't watch your show you say you know audiences are stupid you don't, you don't understand anything about shit when when you get the three of them together you say oh, that was good <laughs> i wish anybody that hear this podcast that you go to Cannes and win a award there you know the french they give you the whole experience it's like you you want that trust me you want that and i'm telling you after i have seven children and i i would i would give one of my children and i want i want the experience <laughs> can you compare acting to being a stand-up comedian kind of on stage with the lights all on you is that is it just a is it any similar in any way or is it just a very different experience Oh, that's that's a very heavy question. <laughs> uh, first of all, I really enjoyed uh, acting. That was a very great experience for me, especially because I was the showrunner of the show. I could also improvise, and improvis improvisation is it's the best part in my job because what is right, writer writer is is improvised on the computer. You know, you improvise the dialogue, and then there's a script. So we continued working on the script when we were shooting the script, and that was very fun because we had a lot of comedians playing very serious roles, or so everybody was improvising, and if somebody said something great we would say okay say it we love it just do it um so it was fun i i do feel that stand-up comedy is is like is my uh religion you know something that i find it like um the thing i have to do when i would be 80 before i die i really hope i would i would die on stage doing stand-up comedy not on stage that would be an awful show but you know j just after i left the show and everybody applauded and i was like oh that's so great because i'm because that's the way to you know to defeat miserable the miserable life of everybody you know the, to make people laugh but i love acting i think it's different i think stand-up comedy is a little bit more intense and needs more practice because you have to do it for years before you're good at it or decent you know i'm not saying i'm good i'm saying that i'm decent probably um and acting is more about being the character in a way and 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 find the similarities between the the, the what is, is reading on the page and you and while i was the writer also of the show that was much more easy for me than the work of other actors who needs to to be very you know um flexible when changing themselves to becoming the character i think and and so you described yourself as the showrunner i mean what were some of the i guess particularly with covid kind of going on at the moment what were some of the, the challenges well, COVID, that you had? We, 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 we finished the show before covid there 
we appeared. Now we're doing a show, a new show, and COVID is all around us, and I can tell you it's much, much harder. But uh, the Israeli shows, we are dealing with a very low budget, very low budget, and uh, the crews in Israel are very independent, very, uh, have all kind of ideas, you know, everybody understands everything about anything, so you have to control them, but not kill them, you know, because you want their good ideas, but you want them also to do your plan, and you have to deal with the budget as a showrunner, and you have to improvise, and you have to, I, I, I'm very addicted to my work, I'm, I'm a workaholic, I work all day, all all the time and I, I don't stop until the episode is finished uh, until I, I, I go through the subtitles of the Hebrew version and the English version and unfortunately I wasn't able to go over the, the French version but I put someone next to me and I wanted him to see the French version and tell me that it's okay until I, until that wasn't finished I never stopped it's an interesting job a showrunner because you're not only a writer you're the guy who runs the, the, the encounter between the money and the art that's a very interesting job because you want the art to be the best it could but you don't want anybody to you know uh, to have a bankruptcy because you're also always a friend of the producer so that's the job making the best show possible with with a low, with a low budget and you mentioned um you know it's a it's a dramedy there's a it's a an hour-long drama with comedy or it's a comedy with you know lots of drama in it you know in the writing how did you kind of balance you know where you wanted the drama to be and, and how funny it should be as well well while we, was, we, we were writing, we didn't try to make it funny. Uh, Tomer and I, Tomer, the, the other creator, the co-creator and the co-writer and the director, we wanted it to be very full of truth. And we were influenced by, the, by, by cinema. We were, we, were, we were strongly influenced by, you know, the movies that we like and the creator that we like, like uh, the Wes Andersons of the world and, and the Coen brothers. So we wanted it to be like a movie. We, don't, we didn't want it to be a sitcom. Uh, but we put a lot of comedy inside because we had a lot of pain inside. And, and the way I digest pain in life, but also as a writer, is I, I turn it into comedy. So it's it's very strong, sad, dramatic catastrophes that you find yourself laugh because of the characters and not because they're trying to make you laugh, but because you laugh because of the because the situations are so uh, crazy. You say, really, this is what you're doing in this moment with your kids when you lost your wife. This is what you like. There's a scene when when Hama um, sees that his children are uh, depressed because of the death of the, their mother and he, he forced them to dance with him and then they stop and they tell him listen dad we didn't brush our teeth for a month now and he's like shocked to discover that so it's it's all bad stuff but you laugh because you you see how ridiculous people are when they're, they're trying to force them, themselves to be happy so what the rule was that we didn't left any joke in if it wasn't real and if it wasn't sincere we didn't left any anything in if we didn't feel that it has a sense of truthfulness in it, in, in it. And also when we did the show, the director, Tomer, was wise enough to tell everybody, you, you, you're not in a comedy. You just act as if you play it like as if it's, it's, it's strong. That makes it a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot funnier. And the show is going to Topic in the US and APC Studios are, are selling it around the world. I mean, why do you think the show will, will maybe tap into what viewers around the world you know, would like to watch? You know, Israeli drama has such a, a high reputation I mean, why is this going to be another show that, that people will want to watch? Well, that, that's that's a difficult question for me. Uh, if I would wear the, the head of a distributor or, or somebody who buys shows, I would say it has it had a lot of success in Israel. It had a lot of success in France. So you know, I think those people, those two nations, are have some similarities. We live on the on the same 
on the beaches of the same sea, if you know the geography, but we are different people. And if the, it was a success here and success here, maybe it can be a success also in Sweden. I don't know. I hope. I think that what makes this show relatable is it's the, the fact that it deals with themes that everybody can identify with, which is uh, how you survive as a family when you, when you encounter catastrophe and how you survive as a family when it's very funny and sad at the same time. And it's a very, very funny show. And, and people love to laugh about truthful things. And also it's about a, a, the relationship between a man and a woman. There's a lot of uh, flashbacks for the, the time that uh, Nehama's wife was alive. And you see like like the private lives of someone and you see that they are very similar to yours. I think you mentioned, you know, the, the US adaptation. Can you tell us about that or who's involved? Well, we, we have a deal with, uh, with Topic, which is a very exciting place, a very smart people sitting there. And it's, it's very interesting to work with them. We are on the beginning of the process we're trying to figure out what should be the the vehicle of the show who should be the star because it's, it's a show of a comedian we need to find a good comedian at the right age of course to do the show and then we we will develop it we have some ideas of, 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 of that for the adaptation we are very excited about it uh, we feel that it's a very American show in a way because we were influenced by of a lot of American creators and also stand-up I think it's it's a very it's a very American art form and family is something that you have find anywhere also in America so I think I'm very I really I'm really excited to see how it will unfold Reshev Levi that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow but in the meantime stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments from MIPCOM and elsewhere within the international TV industry by following C21 online on mobile and social media thanks for listening (laughs) 